to, to John chapter 10. Uh, we'll resume our, our study. Uh, there was a, a recent essay uh, by Joshua Rothman. He's the, the I- ideas editor uh, at the, the New Yorker. And the, the, the article was entitled, What are the odds we are living in a computer simulation? Uh, and uh, the, the article uh, went on to, to present the, the case and the, the odds and the likelihood that, uh, that we are exactly that, uh, merely a computer simulation. The, the article said that many intelligent people uh, in the United States, including Elon Musk, uh, have pointed to the possibility and indeed in their minds the likelihood that we are actually a a computer simulation being run by an advanced civilization thousands of years in the future. Uh, that maybe that civilization has the, the power and the ability to, you know, using nanobots to turn an entire moon uh, into a giant computer uh, and uh, create a simulation uh, that we are now living in. So that would make us just a very advanced video game uh, being played by our great, 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 great grandchildren. That's comforting, right? Uh, to, to think about that. Uh, and if you want to know why that is impossible, just listen to the equipping hour uh, this morning where we talked about scientism. It's impossible for, for consciousness to come from nothing, uh, and the computer will not be or have that consciousness. But this recent article goes to show that, that human beings are always searching for meaning, always searching to explain who we are uh, and why we are here, uh, and even grasping at straws in terms of explanations of uh, us being a, a video game or a simulation. But only a biblical worldview can answer the big questions of life. Why are we here? How did we get here? What are all things working towards? Why do we suffer? Uh, What has gone wrong in the world? How do we make things right? All of those big worldview questions are only answered consistently from Scripture. And God is working out His master plan uh, for all of human history. We are, I'm glad to say it, not a computer simulation. That is not reality. But the reality is that we have been created by God in His image, and we have all rebelled against the God who have, has created us. And we have been intended to, to live for His glory, but we love to live for our own glory. And so to, to rescue and save us from our own rebellion, God sent His Son to live and die and rise again on our behalf, to save humanity, so that human rebels could be reconciled to a holy God. And that is the big picture of the Bible, and that is the big picture that Christ is going to unfold in our passage this morning in John chapter 10. Uh, He has been uh, teaching uh, about himself, about who he is and what he has come to do uh, in this chapter. Uh, Jesus has famously said that he is the good shepherd. Uh, He said that, uh, if you look with me back in uh, verse 7, He said that he introduced the the idea that he was the door of the sheep. So Jesus said again to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. 
I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired man and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. What we're going to cover this morning, Jesus is going to uh, to state once again that he is the good shepherd and he's going to explain the significance of that the significance of him being the good shepherd and what the good shepherd has come to do in human history where christ fits into the eternal plan of god and ultimately it's going to to unveil the big picture of who we are and why we are here right what is god doing in human history he's doing it through his son And God is going to uh, accomplish certain things through Christ in his earthly ministry. And what Christ uh, accomplished in his earthly ministry is going to uh, echo uh, throughout the entire church age and throughout all of eternity. And as I've said in the past, what we're going to, to read and study in this chapter is Jesus talking about his own crucifixion. This is Christ preaching on Christ crucified. And as we're going to look at verses 14 to 21 this morning, Jesus is going to, uh, to outline and, and show us five purposes uh, and, uh, of his plan for history and ultimately of his own role as the good shepherd. What did the good shepherd come to do? Well, the first purpose that we see uh, provided for and in the good shepherd is found in verses 14 and 15. If you would look at those with me, we see that the good shepherd has come to lay his life down for his sheep. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So Jesus repeats himself, showing emphasis. He says, I am the good shepherd, and he introduces, hey, I'm going to talk more about this concept. And he says, I know my sheep. I know my own, and my own know me. And this, this explains why Jesus is willing to die for the sheep. Right? What was the explanation for the hired hand? Why will the hired hand not die for the sheep? Because they're not his. He doesn't have a relationship with him. He's been paid to, to do a particular job, but the sheep do not belong to him. But Jesus says, no, I have sheep and I'm willing to lay my life down for them. This is in contrast not only to the hired hand, but also to the thief mentioned in verse 10 who's come to steal and kill and destroy. Christ died for his sheep that he knows and loves intimately. And his sheep hear his voice and they respond to his voice. Uh, And then Jesus connects the relationship that he has with his sheep, uh, with the relationship that he has with God the Father. He, He builds this connection. He says, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. You know, this is what we should take away from this. Uh, that the relationship that we have with Jesus is similar to, it's not equal to, it's not exactly the same. It's similar to the relationship that Jesus has with the Father. Jesus and the Father have a relational oneness uh, that uh, is a part of their eternal uh, union in the Trinity. Uh, and that 
uh, picture of their relationship shows us uh, a small uh, or a, a greater image of the relationship that we have with uh, Christ. We are his sheep. He is our shepherd. Uh, and he knows us and loves us intimately. Uh, and, uh, but the, the, the relationship between the Father and the Son in the Trinity possesses a, a greater unity and a greater knowledge than what we have of Christ. And yet Jesus' emphasis is that he lays down his life because he knows and loves his own sheep. Now, whenever I have the, the privilege and the opportunity to uh, do premarital uh, counseling uh, with a, a young couple, uh, I get to ask lots of hard questions. Uh, and the, the goal of those questions is to, to bring things to the surface, right? You don't want any surprises later on in marriage. You, you want all of those really big questions uh, that are easier to be asked by uh, a pastor or a third party uh, and addressed in that way. Uh, and, and my goal in asking hard questions to kind of unveil things within the individual lives and in their relationship is I want this young couple to go into this major commitment with eyes wide open. Right? I want them to, to clearly see uh, the character, the good, the bad, and the ugly of the other person. And I'm going to say, are you sure you want to marry this person? If this is their character, are you willing to, to commit to love them uh, in sickness and in health till death do you part? I want them to go in eyes wide open. Right? And, and I'm there I'm leading up to the marriage. I'm going to say, are you sure you want to do this? And then after the marriage, I'm there, no, you've done this. We, we, are, uh, we, we are here to encourage you to, to maintain this commitment. Uh, after the marriage, after the wedding, there's no more, are you sure you want to do this? It's, it, we're, we're continuing on and we're here to help. But the key is them entering into that relationship eyes wide open. And, and sometimes, uh, in, in the back of our own minds, we are afraid in our relationship with God and with Christ. Uh, we are afraid that if he sees us for all that we are, he may not love us as we hope to, right? If God knows all of my deepest, darkest sins and all of my deepest, darkest secrets, will he still love and care for me? But what this tells us right here in this passage is that Jesus entered into relationship with us with his eyes wide open about our character about all of our good traits, which are very few, uh, and all of our sinful traits, which are very many, uh, seeing and knowing all of that, Jesus said, I know you and I want, I'm going to lay my life down for you. That is love. That is what Christ is saying here. And he knows and loves his sheep. He went to the cross to die for us with his eyes wide open concerning who we are. And so we don't need to shrink back from him. What is the, the relational intimacy when, when somebody knows all of your faults and all of your sins and still loves you? You feel free to, to draw near to them. Amen? And you know that they're there no matter what. And we truly have that in Christ. With complete insight into our souls, Jesus gave his life for ours. The good shepherd came to lay his life down for the sheep that he knows intimately. That's a part of his plan. And ultimately, this could be said, this is the big purpose 
from which all of the other purposes that we're going to look at, the, all of the other purposes flow out of this one. Jesus going to the cross to die on behalf of his sheep in place of them. But there's more purposes that Jesus points to here. He gives a second purpose in verse 16. To unite Jews and Gentiles in the church. Verse 16 says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus makes that statement, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. And that builds upon something at the very beginning of this chapter. In verses 1 through 6, Jesus uh, used an illustration and he uh, portrayed the the, the nation of Israel as a sheepfold that false teachers had uh, crept into. They didn't come in through the door. Uh, They crept in over the the walls and they were there to devour and uh, destroy the sheep. Uh, And so when Jesus says, I have sheep who are not of this fold, he's speaking of Gentiles. He's speaking of of those who uh, previously had been estranged and separated from God. And what's profound is that Jesus says, I must do this. Uh, And that that Greek word for must is, is a very theologically weighty term. It's a a Greek word that conveys the idea of absolute necessity. It has been used elsewhere in the New Testament. We saw it back in John chapter 3, verse 7, where Jesus said, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Acts chapter 9, verse 16, comforting words about the Apostle Paul. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's what each one of us wants to hear. By divine decree, we are called to suffer for Christ. If that's what was said about the Apostle Paul. Jesus says, I must bring in these other sheep. Why must he bring in these other sheep outside of the nation of Israel? Because it's according to God's plan. All things are working according to that plan. And Jesus says, there will be now one flock and one shepherd. So Jesus has come to unite Jews and Gentiles and ultimately all peoples in the church. If you if you turn with me uh, over to Ephesians chapter two, the very profound passage that will uh, unpack this to an even greater degree. What Jesus says uh, in a simple uh, statement here in John uh, is going to be demonstrated and lived out in the book of Acts, uh, and then it's going to be explained uh, here uh, in the book of Ephesians. If you look at me, Ephesians chapter two, beginning in verse eleven. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Uh, And that was the, the view and the understanding of Old Testament Israel. That they were the chosen people of God. Uh, And what did that do in their little hearts and minds? That elevated them to a position of pride. And they looked down upon Gentiles. They had no love, no compassion uh, for them. And they would never associate with Gentiles. But now, verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we have we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And this is this is according to the plan of God. This is what God has been uh, working towards in all of human history to unite all people in the church. In his, in his commentary on this passage, William Barclay tells of an, of an incident uh, in the life of uh, Edgerton Young, who was the, the first missionary uh, to the Indians of Saskatchewan, Canada. Now, Edgerton Young had gone to these Indians with the message of love, uh, of the love of God the Father. Now, and they had received it like a new revelation. Now, when he told this message, an old chief said, When you spoke of the Great Spirit just now, did I hear you say, Our Father? Yes, I did, said the missionary. We know him as Father because he is revealed to us as Father by Jesus Christ. That is very new and sweet to me, said the chief. We never thought of the Great Spirit as Father. We heard him in the thunder. We saw him in the lightning, the tempest and the blizzard, and we were afraid so when you tell us that the Great Spirit is our Father, that is very beautiful to us. And the chief paused, and then as though the, 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 the reality and the weightiness of this truth was setting in, he said, uh, Missionary, did you say that the Great Spirit is your Father? I did, said Young. And, and the chief said, did you say that he's also the Father of the Indians? Yes, said the missionary. Then, said the old chief, you and I are brothers. That, that is the reality of what Christ has come to do. To unite Jew and Gentile, but not just Jew and Gentile. To unite all people. When we, uh, when we look at Revelation 4 in the throne room of heaven, there are people from every nation, tribe, and tongue there worshiping Christ for who He is and what He has done. And that is what the church is supposed to be. The church is the best and only hope for unity and peace across racial and ethnic lines. Uh, there is uh, union and there is equality at the foot of the cross. We are all made equal there. So it doesn't matter uh, where you were born, what color your skin is, what socioeconomic class that you are in. We are all equal uh, at the foot of the cross. We are all united that is what the, the church is, and that is what the church uh, should be a picture of in this world. And that is according to Christ's plan, to lay down his life for the sheep, uh, to unite a people, to redeem a people uh, for himself, uh, and ultimately, thirdly, uh, to display love in multiple ways. If you, if you look at verse 17, now all of this will display the love of God not just in one way, but multiple ways. Verse 17 says, For this reason the Father loves me, 
because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. Now, and so we, we typically think of the cross as a demonstration of God's love for the world. And why do we typically think of it in that way? Well, because what's the, the most well-known Bible verse? John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world. And that is an explanation of why he sent his son. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes shall not perish but have eternal life. But other verses also proclaim uh, the love of God in the cross. But Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. First John chapter 4, verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So yes, uh, the cross is a demonstration of the Father's love for the world. Here's some other things to think about. The cross is also a demonstration uh, of the Son's love for His people. Right? John chapter 15, verse 13. Jesus will speak to His disciples, and He says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down His life for His friends. Right? The the cross is a demonstration of Jesus' love for His people. Thirdly, the cross is also uh, a display of the Son's love for the Father. Jesus goes to the cross not only because he loves his sheep, but because he loves and will obey God the Father and the plan of the Father. Obedience is always a demonstration of love. John fourteen thirty one, Jesus says, But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. John 15, verses 9 through 11, As the Father has loved me, So have I loved you and abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Christ is saying, I'm willing to go to the cross, not only because I love the sheep, but because He loves the Father. And it will abide according to the plan of the Father. But then in addition to this, the cross also displays the Father's love for the Son. Now, as this is written here in the text, it says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Uh, We have to understand this in context of of a, a bigger and broader theology of the Trinity. Okay, Jesus didn't earn the Father's love by going to the cross uh, because later on in John's Gospel, in John 17, Jesus is going to, to speak of the love between the Father and the Son as being an eternal reality. This is what he says in John 17. His Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So so we have to to keep this in mind. The Father has always loved the Son, and the Son has always loved the Father. One commentator, D.A. Carson, explains it this way. It is not that the Father withholds His love until Jesus agrees to give up His life on the cross and rise again. Rather, the love of the Father for the Son is eternally linked with the unqualified obedience of the Son to the Father, His utter dependence upon Him, culminating in His greatest act of obedience, now that is just before Him, a willingness to bear the shame 
and ignominy of Golgotha, the isolation and rejection of death, the sin and curse reserved for the Lamb of God. And ultimately, the cross of Christ uh, is a demonstration of the Father's love for the Son as well. You're like, how is that possible? Well, uh, the cross of Christ is also going to be uh, the means of His exaltation. Right? The, the Father's love is demonstrated in that uh, Jesus goes to the cross and then... Uh, because of the, the crucifixion, because of what takes place on the cross, Jesus will be exalted by the Father. Uh, Philippians 2 describes it in this way. And being hound, found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, there is not just a singular love that is being demonstrated at the cross. Love is so multifaceted, and what is being displayed and, and put uh, on display for us at the cross, we need to we need to contemplate and to think about it. All of this adds new depth to that hymn that we sing, the love of God. Right? Have you ever thought about uh, that final verse in the love of God? Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. And nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. That is what we see when we just meditate just a little bit about what Christ did on the cross. This is the beauty of the gospel, right? That we as sinners get brought into the love of the, the triune God. And so when we, you are filled with doubt, when you are overwhelmed with discouragement, when you are suffering from disease or laid low by disability, remember the love of God that has been put on display at the cross of Calvary. Even when you're distracted by a noise over here, the love of God is still our main focus. The love of the triune God is put on display at the cross. But there are additional purposes that Jesus is going to continue to unfold here. The fourth being in, in verse 18. And Jesus is going to demonstrate his authority over death. Jesus makes this clear. No one takes it, speaking of his life, no one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. You hear Jesus goes out of his way to make it clear that his enemies, who will succeed in killing him, but his enemies are not the primary cause of his death. No one takes his life from him he gives it up willingly. His enemies might seize his body and arrest him, but they are unable to take his life unless he submits to their plan. Later on in John's Gospel, chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus, in speaking uh, to Pilate, 
He says this, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And in Matthew chapter 26, again, speaking in that conversation with Pilate, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? Jesus could have stopped the proceedings of His arrest and of His unjust trial. Really, really simply and really, really succinctly. Could have been over. But He didn't. He died of His own accord. And if you were to to look at the the death of of Julius Caesar, there would be some similarities with the death of Christ, right? Julius Caesar was, was murdered by political leaders. He was betrayed by a close friend. Now, he was the, the victim of a conspiracy. But there are some similarities there. And if that would be the, the only similarities, if that would be the, the only overlap, then, then Jesus w- would just be another martyr. He'd just be another tragic figure. If, if the only cause of Jesus' death is that some people didn't like him, he would just be a tragic figure. But He is more than just a martyr and a victim. He is the crucified and risen Son of God. He is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He is the one whom God has planned to save and rescue a people for Himself. The death of Christ is according to the eternal plan of God. And Jesus has the authority to lay down His life and to take it up again. It's very, very important. And uh, this power over life and death is also a claim to deity because who's the only one who has the power over life and death? God Himself. But Jesus says, I can lay my my life down and I can take it back up. No one else can brag like that, right? Uh, But Jesus can. And if Christ has authority over death, then we don't need to fear what is in the Savior's hands. Amen? Amen? We don't need to be afraid of what is in His control. 1 Corinthians 15 says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. We need not fear any virus. We need not fear any political regime. We need not fear anything else in all of creation, because nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We have to cling to that. And Jesus' authority over death is not an abstract theoretical principle that stays in the clouds. It gives us courage and comfort and hope in the here and now as we live our day-to-day lives. But the plan of the Good Shepherd to lay down His life for His people, to unite Jews and Gentiles in the church, to put love on display and to demonstrate His power over death. And then finally, verses 19 to 21, part of Jesus going to the cross, uh, giving His life for His sheep, is also to force a decision from all people. If you look with me at those verses, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to Him? 
And others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So after all of this, uh, the crowds are at the exact same place that they were before. They are divided about who Jesus is. There's literally a schism among them. One group says, this guy is out of his mind. Demon possessed. And that allows them to disregard uh, and to, to dismiss everything that he has said and everything that he has done. But another group says, wait a second. You can't just wipe away everything that Jesus has done because let's just look at what he's done, right? Demon possession means somebody is sick. That's what demons do. They don't improve the health of somebody. <laughs> they destroy the health of somebody. Now, a demon-possessed man is not able to give sight to the blind, let alone a man who has been blind from birth. And the testimony of the man who has been born blind, back in John chapter 9, says, Never in the history of the world was anybody who was born blind healed. That's unheard of. And so certain people are willing to think just a little bit, wait a second, I'm not sure who this Jesus guy is, but he, he can't be demon-possessed. Demons don't, don't heal, they destroy. And so what is amazing is that all of these people who are saying Jesus is, is demon-possessed, they are eye and ear witnesses to everything that he has said and everything that he has done. And yet what conclusion do they come to? They seek to explain him away, even in an illogical way, uh, in, in a way that's easily refuted, Right? And what this does is it, is it shows us that, that the real issue is not external, it is internal. Right? Within each and every one of us, the real issue is our response to Jesus. Not merely whether or not he did these things. That is undeniable because that's, the crowd is obviously pointing and saying, you can't deny this. All of this shows us that Jesus is the ultimate divisive figure in all of human history. Right? No individual uh, is more divisive than, than Christ. And ultimately, Jesus has proclaimed many things in his gospel, that have, uh, in his ministry that we've already seen in John's gospel, that, that, are, that, that draw a line in the sand. Right? Even earlier in this chapter, he said that he is the, the gate. Right? If you want to get into the, the fold of God, if you want to have uh, a relationship with God the Father, you must go uh, through Jesus. He's the, the only way in. Back in John chapter 8, verse 24, Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. And those are divisive words. And those are the, the types of claims that Jesus makes that, that make it impossible to land on he's just a good teacher, right? Because a good teacher doesn't make those types of claims. But Jesus is divisive. An early uh, church historian, uh, Hegesippus, records that, that James, the, the brother or the half-brother of Jesus, was executed uh, by his uh, opponents uh, in part because of his answer to the question what is the gate of Jesus? And speaking about John chapter 10 of what we've been uh, studying. Well, what, what is this gate that Jesus mentioned? Uh, and ultimately, he, he answered 
uh, with the, the reality that, that Jesus is the only gate uh, and that Jesus is the Son of Man who will be returning uh, one day in glory with his angels. And his Jewish opponents didn't like that. They took him up to the, the top of the Temple Mount and they threw him off. And then finding him to still be alive after that, they went and they stoned him. Right? And what was the basis of that? One little thing. What is the gate that Jesus spoke about? Is he the only way? What do you believe about that? And this, Christ has always been divisive. He, he forces a decision. And if you say that Jesus is the only way of salvation, you will naturally have enemies. You will naturally have strained relationships. You will be divided and separated from others because this is a part of what Jesus came to do. He forces this type of a decision. There's no neutral ground. And again, the Apostle John returns to drive this point home over and over again. Uh, He said the exact same thing. There was a a schism among them. There's a division among them back in chapter 7, again in chapter 9. There is confusion and debate about who Jesus is. If we have placed our faith and our trust in Christ, then we have to grow accustomed to this reality, that that we will be uh, divided from others. And we have to come to peace with it. That others will will wander from us if we're going to make and repeat the claims of Christ because uh, the, the world crucified Jesus. They didn't like his message. So if we place our faith in Christ, we have to come to accept this. If you've, if you've not placed your faith in Christ, you've got to wrestle with this. You can't avoid this. And you can't dodge Jesus forever. You have to come to a conclusion about who he is, about his ministry, about his life, right? You may come to the conclusion, as some did, that he is a demon-possessed lunatic. You may come to the conclusion that he is a liar. You may come to the conclusion that he is the Lord of all the earth with the power to heal the blind and raise the dead. And if you come to that conclusion and you say that he is Lord, then he is also your Savior. That is what he has promised. But if you say that he is either a a liar or a lunatic, then you will one day be shown your error. You will one day see that that conclusion is an error and if if you wait too long it will be too late make that decision here and now look to Christ in faith don't don't waffle on that point each and every person here will one day if you haven't already have to answer that question who is Jesus what am I going to do with him what category do I place him in We have seen in this passage that Jesus himself proclaimed that he is the good shepherd. And he has unpacked that for us this morning, right? The the significance of him being the good shepherd. What is the good shepherd going to do that makes him good? Well, he's going to lie or lay his life down for the sheep. He's going to unite Jews and Gentiles in the church. He's going to display love multiple ways. He's going to demonstrate authority over death. He's going to force a decision from all people. 
And that, that is the, the shepherd's plan that we see here in this passage. It's what we see Jesus accomplished at the cross and what he is still doing here and now in the present time. And we are commanded to trust in Jesus as the good shepherd and to rest in his love, to rest in his care and concern, to rejoice in his power over death and the promise that he has given to us of a resurrection in the future. But this passage also calls each of us to a sheep hunt. And some of you who are experienced hunters are probably chuckling because you're like, you don't hunt sheep. Uh, but the, the experienced hunters, let's be honest, they're probably not here. They're out hunting. Uh, uh, it's hunting season. But Jesus tells us that he has sheep that are out there in the world. And how has he ordained that those sheep would be found? That those sheep are found by other sheep. Those sheep are found as uh, his sheep go out uh, proclaiming the message of who Jesus is and what he has done. Uh, we go out on a, on a sheep hunt not knowing who's going to respond to the message of the gospel. Uh, we go out not knowing uh, who are those uh, who belong to uh, that singular flock that belongs to Jesus as the good shepherd. But we have been commanded to go out in faith and proclaim uh, to our uh, friends, neighbors, and countrymen, to all of the nations we are called to go and proclaim the good news of salvation in Christ, that he is the gate, that he is the good shepherd who gave his life on behalf of his sheep. And that is a message of hope and comfort and salvation that our world desperately needs right here and right now. And we are called to go on that sheep hunt and to, to fire out the gospel with, with grace and compassion, with patience, telling people about the loving God whom they have rebelled against, but who also sent his son to live and die for them. 